Hallelujah. Oh Lord, we thank you that if we, our eyes would be open to the deeds that you have accomplished, worthy of our praise and adoration, that this service would not be long enough. Indeed, eternity itself would not be insufficient for us, Lord, to have enough time to express to you the glory you deserve for what you have done. Every split second of every single day is a testimony to your sovereign grace and power, upholding, commanding, directing, sustaining this universe, every atom, every electron, every proton, every bit, every event, every detail, every person. Lord, all of these things in your sovereign hand are guided and directed to your holy will and your ultimate purposes to give you glory. This is the greatness and the power of the God we served expressed in every aspect of his creation and all that you have ordained. And as we turn to your word, we especially remember your works of salvation unto us, your people, this day. Lost and dead in our trespasses and sins, unworthy of your grace and favor, nevertheless, you saw fit to glorify yourself by redeeming a people, decrepit and dead, Lord Jesus, spiritually, without hope of life, except that Christ might intervene. Do a resurrecting work in the hearts and the lives, the souls of the once sinners now saved by grace alone. Father, we thank you for your work on Calvary when you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to endure the wrath that we deserved. We thank you for recording your works of redemption in Scripture from the pages of prophecy to the record of fulfillment in the new. We thank you for writing these things on the tables of the hearts of those who have been redeemed, who have been born again by the power of the miracle-working Holy Spirit, raising the dead to life. Lord, we thank you for giving us grace to endure the trials between now and glory. We pray today as we open your scriptures that you would open our hearts and further equip your church to stand and to boldly take ground for the kingdom of God as we seek to advance the name and the crown rights of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who has died for us, risen again, ever lives and rules and reigns forever, placing his enemies under his footstool and redeeming his own by the power of his precious blood. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, even now as we turn to his holy word. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. What a great honor and privilege it is for us to gather in the name of Jesus Christ and to open up his scriptures. I'd encourage you to do so with me by turning to Psalm 120 today. Our second Sunday of the month, we continue our psalm series and we have successfully completed Psalm 119 in a series of 22 sermons. And now we turn to a new psalm, Psalm 120. And here we also turn to a new section of the Psalter. You'll notice at the top in your Bible, the title of this song is A Song of Ascents. This title will be repeated 15 times as Psalms 120 through 134 share this common theme. This morning, the title of this message is Cry of Ascent. The psalmist in this first song cries unto the Lord in three ways, prayer, proclamation, and lament. The aim of our sermon this morning is to orient our souls to Mount Zion's hope through Jesus Christ, to orient our souls to the hope of Mount Zion that is available to the true believer through Christ alone. Thus, the cry of ascent that the psalmist echoes we find fulfilled in Jesus and becomes our own cry 
as we pray that the Lord would guide and lead and direct us from here to the point of ascendancy, if you will, into the reaches of glory, into the heavenly places, into the fullness of our salvation realized. With that introduction and your hearts open and out of reverence for the Word of God, would you stand as you're able and let us listen to Psalm 120, a song of, of ascents. Hear now the word of the Lord. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 120 introduces the Psalm of Ascents collection in this section of the Psalter. Chapters 120 through 134 share this title, which can be translated in the original Hebrew, the scholars tell us, degrees or steps, or an upward trajectory, a direction. Ascending means to go up. We think of the ascension, of course, where Jesus himself goes up to be at the right hand of the Father as the book of Acts opens. We also think of the trajectory of worship traditionally through the Old Testament. The cry was, we will go up to Zion to praise the Lord. Didn't matter where you were in the world. If you're on the top of Mount Everest, if you're north, south, east, or west, this direction did not have to do with geography, but instead a trajectory of hope unto the Lord's promises. We will go up to worship the Lord. We lift our eyes up to Him. In Him our help comes. We see these pictures, this imagery, this helpful analogy all the way through the scriptures in many different ways. These themes, of course, are picked up in Psalm 120. And I would argue all the Psalms of Ascent through 134 as they share this title, and rightfully so. These degrees or steps or direction or trajectory toward the Lord is the orientation of the heart of the psalmist in each case, and also the sincere worshiper as he sings these songs with all his heart. Many have taken this section as a hymnal to accompany the pilgrimage of the faithful unto temple worship in Jerusalem. And I think that's probably right. It, it seems you can hear these songs sung along the way as the dusty roads towards Mount Zion are populated with the faithful who sandal step after sandal step sets their heart and their face like flint just as Christ would one day do to the place of God's meeting with mankind. And so songs along this lengthy journey would be appropriate as they anticipate the promises of redemption pictured in the sacrifices and as they gloriously hope for that presence of the Lord to be a tangible reality for them as their sins are atoned for and the Lord himself visits his people resting there between the cherubim upon the mercy seat when the shed blood has been sprinkled by the priest to symbolically atone for the sins of the people. The first three songs in this section are all set in prox proximity, if you will, to the holy habitation of the Lord with his people and would well accompany a sojourner who is far from Jerusalem, but had set his face to the holy city. Let's just take the first verse of each of the first three songs together and notice how they form a theme. In my distress, 120 verse 1, I called to the Lord and he answered me. 121 verse 1, 
I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? And then 122 verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Do you see that trajectory, that direction? Distress, hope, and the house of the Lord. When, and this is basically the shape of the gospel. The, the Spirit finds us in distress, ultimately because of our sin and the condemnation it deserves and the condemnation we are under until God sets us free. When we hear the gospel, our eyes are lifted. They're lifted up. Our trajectory is above our experience, humanity, and also the, all the idols that inhabit the plane of mere human existence. No, our hope comes higher. It's from the Lord, from the hills, so to speak. Where is that hope more specifically found? In his temple, in his house. That is the place of God's dwelling with man when the necessary prerequisites are met. Our passage today, the first of these songs, finds our author perhaps furthest away in the lands of Meshach and Kedar, furthest away from the temple. However distant he may be from the place of covenant assurance, however, it is apparent that his hope is in the Lord. And if he were to sing the next psalm, he would be in his confession lifting up his hopeful eyes to the hills from where his help comes from. And then in Psalm 122, the place, the object of that hope as represented by the work of the Lord in the temple and his abiding with his people would be the psalmist's delight. As the psalms continue to progress, they culminate in chapters 132 through 134 in the temple itself. Without time to turn there in your own study this week, look at how those psalms are offered to the Lord in the very context of what the authors hoped for earlier in this section. Nine or ten songs in between express various themes and application relating to the covenant, relating to this covenant hope of all of true Israel. And then we bring forward the context of these psalms in our own experience. And from our vantage point in the history of salvation, we can appreciate these musical confessions in light of their fulfillment in substance in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have arrived at the temple, if you will. Remember what the woman at the well was told in John chapter 4. The argument isn't, should we worship here at this mountain in Samaria or here at this mountain in Jerusalem? No, those who worship, worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. In truth, that Jesus Christ has died and purchased their soul at the cost of his blood. In spirit, in that, the third person of the Trinity now has transformed and indwells each of the saints. So wherever the assembly of the church is gathered, there is Mount Zion. And so Mount Zion is here in our midst, so to speak, if you will. Hallelujah. So as we sing these songs, we can experience their fullness in a way unique. Because what Christ, what was prophesied here, Christ has accomplished in Scripture. And let's continue to sing them, saints. We will sing them, that is, on our way to glory. And that ultimate, if you will, high place or place of dwelling with the Lord, the habitation of His glory, at Mount Zion fully realized, the marriage supper of the Lamb. May these songs, and they will indeed, accompany us and the rest of His church on that journey. So with that overview of this section of the Psalter and a brief introduction to this psalm, let us consider this psalm in three parts, prayer, proclamation, and lament. These are three expressions of the psalmist's cry. The psalmist's cry expressed in prayer, verses 1 through 2. This cry for assent is expressed in proclamation, 
especially to the wicked, verses 3 and 4. And then finally, in lament, the sorrow of his soul expressed in verses 5 through 7. The psalmist's cry for assent, if you will, is expressed in prayer in verses 1 and 2. He says, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. This is his prayer for deliverance. In his distress, he cries out to the Lord. He lifts his eyes up, so to speak, above the conflict and affliction that he endures to where his help may come from. In these first two verses, we notice a pairing that is common in the Psalms. I called and he answered. What a simple and beautiful way to describe the hopeful prayer of a believer who has a legitimate relationship with the Lord and has a testimony to prove it. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Saints, it would do us well to journal in our mind, if not on paper, the times where he, we called and he answered. In morning prayer, we, tied, we tried to remember those times each week so that we're not like the nine lepers who were healed and then just went on our way, but instead we're like the one that returns. You see, those lepers were healed to do what they wanted to do already, perhaps. You know, pursue their careers or bu- their bus- businesses or self-fulfillment, their family, the fun that they had so desired, but leprosy stood in their way. But we saints are saved more than pursuing our self-interest, are we not? We are saved to worship the Lord Almighty. So in our distress, when we cry out to him, and when he answers, what is our response? We are to remember this and to use it as inspiration for faith, for song, for further prayers, and for joyful realization that we are his and he is ours. And in Christ, this is true. There is a relationship between distress and devotion that the psalmist models. In other words, his devotion to the Lord was the answer in his distress. The author models a godly relationship between these two things. And this is helpful because most people do not have a good relationship between their devotion to the Lord and the distress they feel. Who do we call on in our distress? Through the psalmist, he called to the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant keeper, deliver me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. Who do we call on? Well, oftentimes prayer is, you know, very a, a common appeal, generally speaking, without much weight and merit, I would say culturally. Thoughts and prayers for so-and-so is a popular phrase. But most often I see in our culture today, and among people, generally speaking, that prayer is more a last resort than a first priority. The Psalms model prayer as a first priority, not a last resort. In other words, when people are in distress, they tend to run to every possible tangible answer in their experience, advice from friends, counsel from a therapist, a psychological explanation, things that they learn in school, they race to the internet, they try to find answers there. In my distress, I cried out to Google and WebMD answered me. Does that sound like a psalm? No, that psalm's like Americans. When in our distress, the first resort is usually information collated by others that have gone through similar experiences and the like are experts in the field rather than the Lord who knows everything, has fearfully and wonderfully made us, by the power of his spoken word has engineered and ordered and created everything in this material existence out of nothing prayer ought to be Not our last resort, but our first priority in distress. There's a popular 
country-ish song right now by a fellow named Jelly Roll. And I wrote down these lyrics because I thought that they were helpful in describing kind of the a, sort of a confession of where people's hearts are often at when it comes to prayer. He sings, I only talk to God when I need a favor. I only pray when I ain't got a prayer. And he goes on to say, who the heck am I? You know, a little bit uh, revised language there for the benefit of younger ears. Am I to expect a savior if I only talk to God when I need a favor, but God, I need a favor. That is an interesting confession. It's one that makes me cry out for this man to meet Jesus Christ. He recognizes something pitifully true. If I only cry out to God in my distress as a last resort or when I need a favor, then how am I to expect that he will answer? The answer, of course, is by grace alone. Perhaps a concept that this man has not realized yet, and I pray he would. But when grace alone visits us, though we don't deserve it, what should be our response? To echo to the Lord our thankfulness, our gratefulness, and our prayer as a first priority and not as a last resort. We live in a society that turns to the Lord at last resort. We live in a society of the crisis-motivated religious people who in their times of hardship and in their times of distress, when they've exhausted everything else, may turn to the Lord. But let us not be like this. Let us be like the psalmist who expresses in his distress that his hope is in the Lord and that from the hills his help comes from, that is, from God's place, the place of the Lord's dwelling. And let us be glad when they say unto us, let us go to the house of the Lord and let us dwell in the presence of the Lord and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That way the relationship between the distress that we experience and our devotion to the Lord would model something more healthy that this, uh, and, and much more grounded than the sort of last resort spirituality that we are tempted to indulge sometimes or see so often around us. What is the cause for our distress? We've considered who do we call in our distress. What is the cause of our distress? That's an important question, too, raised implicitly by the psalm. The psalmist says, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Later he says, Too long I've had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The psalmist, in context, is distressed because he lives in a lying society. He lives among a people who do not value truth. It doesn't matter if the consequences of the deception that they indulge are violence and war itself. They seem to never learn their lesson. He, I'm sure, has personally been the victim of their deceit and of their lying. He's been slandered. He's been defamed. And this has been a distressful circumstance for him. But in all of this, he recognizes that perhaps the greatest distress of all is to be distant from the temple presence of the Lord. And therefore, he directs his soul to the place of assurance. He feels vulnerable to the trials of life because of the weakness of his flesh, the strength of his enemies, and he's so far from Jerusalem. He's in Meshach and he's in Kedar. Where are we to find assurance? Where are we and what is the cause of our distress? Well, if our soul begins to weaken, because of our distance, our proximity to Zion, the love of our salvation has dwindled. The ordinary cares of life have grown thorns that threaten to choke out the seed of the gospel. 
the childlike faith that we once enjoyed when we first confessed faith in Christ has started to wane into the cynicism of spiritual adulthood because we haven't spent enough time in the presence of the Lord in Zion, so to speak. These are real causes for distress. More specifically, alarm and sadness, beholding the wickedness of the pagan culture around him through which he sojourns. Are we alarmed and are we saddened because of the wickedness of the pagan society through which we sojourn? Or have we grown used to it and dull to it and jaded by it and cynical? Have our hearts grown calloused in the environment in which we live? Have we surrendered to the spirit of the age? We should be distressed by the evil that's around us. Oh Lord, help us to stay angry at those who would defame your name. Help us to have a visceral, visceral reaction of just retribution deserved, but by the grace of God, when we hear the word of the Lord, the concepts of Scripture, the reality of the gospel, the exclusive claims of the Bible, blasphemed or belittled in our society. This should be cause for our, for our distress. The first assumption as we read this text is that the author has experienced a personal slight, malicious slander. He's the victim of deceit. We find in the context, it is more than that. He's dwelling among those who hate peace. As he's dwelling in a society that hates the Lord and the virtues of godliness and the gospel. And this is the cause of his distress. He is careful to maintain, that is to say, the distinction between what it means to be the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And he has not let even his distance from Zion dull his soul such that he becomes sort of acclimated and assimilated to the idolatry of the world around him. But he fights to be a light. He fights to not be ashamed of the truth that the covenant holds. And he fights to keep his eyes fixed on Zion. O oh Lord, lift me out of my distress. Ascend me, if you will, to your hill and to the place of your dwelling. This line and this deceit that he expresses distress about are fundamental concerns. If we go to the greater testimony of Scripture, we find that it was truthful and creative speech that ordained and ordered and created this entire universe in the very beginning. Don't underestimate the issue at hand here. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. That's not that big a deal. Oh, yes? You think, you think that's not a big deal? Through the gate of lying lips from Satan himself, sin entered this world that was created by the truthful, the holy speech of an almighty, powerful, sovereign God. Lying and deceit versus holiness and truth, that is the ultimate juxtaposition, if you will. That's the ultimate contrast. The psalmist is expressing a concern that is based in the very foundation of righteousness and wickedness. Blasphemous, false words, they are the song of the enemy. Those who would deceit or deceitfully twist and obscure and spin, you know, these words that are familiar to us. These are the songs, not of ascent, but they are the worship of the blasphemous wicked that they sing on their way to hell. <clears throat> what if our first parents shared the conviction the psalmist expressed here? What if Adam and Eve had cried out in the Garden of Eden, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Oh, what a different world this would be right now. But instead, Adam and Eve both, they caved to the deceitful arguments of the enemy. 
This is a picture of all sin. Sin comes to us at root, deceiving and twisting the words of God, lying to us that there's a preferable way over the word, what God has established. doesn't matter what category of sin it is, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. At root is this difference between the lying and the deceit of the enemy and the truthful word of God, which is established forever and never fails. And so which will it be? Let us cry out with the psalmist, deliver us from the lying lips and from the deceit of our age. Thank God the second Adam did share this conviction. Where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus was submitted to a test, a probation, a temptation in the wilderness. And three times the enemy lied straight to his face. And Jesus was able to discern and to reject and to defeat the enemy. And what did he do so? How did he do so? He did so on the basis of the word of God. The word of God treasured, the word of God understood, and the word of God wielded. Jesus treasured the word of God. He was the word of God. He understood the word of God. He was wisdom personified. He wielded the word of God as a weapon. And that sharp two-edged sword of the word of God in our Savior's hand defeated the enemy, chased him off that high hill, if you will, and preserved the holiness of Zion as a habitation for him and his elect when they would submit to his powerful defeat of Satan and his shed blood for their sins. And in doing so, he expressed the heart of conviction in its fullness that the psalmist does here. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. So in Christ, praise the Lord, we are delivered. Cling to him, cling to your champion, and take up the sword of the Spirit and all the armaments sufficient for the cause, and let us push back the enemy and the wickedness that he wields by way of these things, deceit and lies. There's a case in point that you might study. In Psalm 52 corresponds to a passage in 1 Samuel 22, 6-23. We won't turn there this morning, but this is where Doeg the Edomite was chilling in and around the tabernacle, David, the anointed king, was in distress. And when he sought refuge there in the house of God, he was betrayed by this wicked guy, Doeg the Edomite, deceitful man such as he was. This betrayal, David in the scriptures recognized as one who would seek short-term advantage, favor with the king at the time Saul, at the cost of what? Righteousness, integrity, the word of God, betraying the anointed one. So this becomes an archetype of the wickedness that illustrates the motive forces driving those who afflict the people of God and believe the lies around them and do not set their eyes, lift their eyes in the directory or direction, the trajectory of their life to Zion. Do not be like them. Instead, make prayer your first priority that God might deliver you in your distress. Honor and glorify Him and sing the Psalms. Sing, sing Psalm 120 and let your spirit be lifted in the times of your sorrow and difficulty by its faith-filled words. Point number two, a second expression of the psalmist's cry, proclamation. He has something authoritative to say to his enemies because they are the enemies of God as well, verses three and four. What shall be given to you? Who is you? This is the one, the idea, the, uh, the sinfulness or the society or whoever might lie to him and exercise their deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? 
And then the answer comes in verse 4. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. You can see the faith of the psalmist gaining confidence and courage to call out the enemies of the Lord and declare to them this truth. Whereas they lie and deceive, he is speaking truth to the wicked. And that truth comes by way of a proclamation of judgment. He is, follow, or as an ambassador of God's truth, speaking, echoing what has been laid down in the covenant terms and conditions of the scripture. You can look at it this way. He is prosecuting a covenant lawsuit against the enemies of the Lord. This is a concept I love to think of, this proclamation of truth and judgment for enemies and salvation for those who surrender to him in these terms. There is a law laid down that would be the covenant of the Lord. When you fall short of it, there's an accounting and an accountability. And preaching the gospel in the first place is bringing a lawsuit, bringing charges, bringing, an, and it's an appeal to a never-failing a law, God's righteousness, and it's saying that you fall short, recognizing when you come to salvation in the first place, I fall short of the glory of God, which is this standard of righteousness. And therefore, according to this body of law, according to this righteous standard, I am guilty, I fall short, and I am under the wrath and condemnation and deserving of God's judgments unless and until I repent. And that judgment is paid by another. Psalm 50, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. From the rising of the sun to its setting, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. The holiness of God's righteousness expressed in this poetic way. Our God comes, he does not keep silent. Before him is a devouring fire, much like the coals of the broom tree we'll read of in a minute, and the arrows of the Lord, instruments of judgment. Around him a mighty tempest, likewise a storm, representing God's vengeance and wrath that is stored up for those who refuse to repent and continue to defy him. Verse 5, gather to me, or 4, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that they may judge, that he, excuse me, may judge. This is a court case, the witnesses that are summoned. Stand here, heavens, stand here, earth, as witnesses in this court case, as I levy this prosecution against my enemies. To the wicked, verse 16, God says, What right do you have to recite my, to my statutes? He goes on, You hate discipline. Your mouth, in verse 19, has free reign for evil. Your tongue frames deceit. Similar categories of sin here are expressed. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge. Mark this then, you who forget God lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. There's a contrast of hope at the end to the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me, to one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So the terms become clarified when that covenant lawsuit is brought, and the word of God and his law is appealed to as the righteous standard, and that reckoning is proclaimed. To Outdoor services that we've had recently, both, and Gene preached and myself as well, referred to Acts chapter 2. And you see a covenant lawsuit in the form of the gospel preaching of the first wave of apostles prosecuted against those who had slaughtered Jesus Christ, the sovereign and savior. And as Peter points to the crowd, it's this first person proclamation of guilt. You killed your savior. You are guilty of murder in the worst degree. You have uh, blasphemed the Holy One. 
the one who was prophesied by David and fulfilled in time. And therefore, you stand accountable before a holy God who has stored up wrath and vengeance against his enemies. I call you to repent. Cut to the heart, they cry, what must I do to be saved? And of course, the answer is, trust that Jesus' blood is a sufficient payment for the justice and judgment that you deserve. And so in Acts 2, and here in Psalm 120, in Psalm 50, we have this second person, if you will, you, this orientation of proclamation of guilt to the unbeliever. Now, four fingers are pointed back at us before, if you will, we repent and believe. But once we have submitted to Christ, it is our call to join the testimony, even in distress, of guilty until you turn to Jesus Christ. First priority, when the gospel is proclaimed. So under this proclamation, there's this covenantal prosecution, but there's also reference to instruments of judgment. Verse 4, so what could you expect? What should you expect, deceitful ones, lying li- those with lying lips, if you do not repent? The answer, a warrior's sharp arrows, and secondly, glowing coals of the broom tree. Two instruments of judgment, arrow and fire, and even more particular, a sharp arrow uh, uh, by a warrior, one who is skilled to wield it. So arrows, if you go to the rest of Scripture and you kind of build a word study case, even in the Psalms, you'll find that this implement, this weapon, is a recurring imagery referring to the targeted and terrifying judgments of God. His arrows are sharp and they're wielded in a hand of a warrior. Someone with the experience, the knowledge, and the weapon to neutralize, to defeat, to kill his target instantly through this precise uh, means and this sharp implement. This is what arrow refers to. Poetically, it's describing the terrifying judgments of God. His judgments are like sharp arrows. They are precise and effective. They are personally directed. We do not live and merely, we do not live merely as victims of the collateral damage of a chaotic world. No, but even the calamity that happens and the particular acts of God's judgment, they have meaning. They're not mindless, uh, they're not mindless calamity, if you will. They're not tragedies, so to speak, but instead they are the targeted and directed judgments of God that come at his appointed time. Jesus was asked the question, what of this tower that fell on these unsuspecting travelers in this area. Uh, And his answer was, repent or you will likewise perish. We can draw from this that when calamity strikes, although we don't know precisely what God's arrow, who God's arrow was targeting in specifics, we certainly know that there comes a day of reckoning for each and every unrepentant soul and that the judgments of God are perfect and righteous and no one will escape. Again, there's an example, a sort of case in point of this that perfectly illustrates the arrows of God. 1 Kings 22, 34, let me just touch upon it briefly. You may remember the context. Ahab has been rebelling against the Lord in so many ways. And finally, his lawlessness is coming to a head. God has ordered and purposed a time in which he will answer for his blasphemy, for his wickedness, for his syncretism, mixing paganism and the worship of Yahweh for his marriage to that wicked Jezebel. Verse 29, so the king of Israel, Ahab, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, 
went up to Ramoth-Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, so it had been prophesied that he was running into trouble here. He says, oh, I'll come up with an idea. I'll disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. So he's going to put on armor like any other soldier rather than flaunt his authority as the king to rally the troops. King of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded 32 captains of the chariots fight with either small or great, but only with the king of Israel. So they were, the enemy was specifically directed to target the king, but he was in disguise. Oh, they couldn't find him. It seems his plan was working. But, verse 34, a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. So, two things. Covered in armor, disguised as an ordinary soldier. The enemies were directed, go find the king and target him. An arrow happened to fly. You know, this soldier from Syria, Syria just knocks an arrow, lets it fly. Our so the sovereign hand of our God directs that arrow to go between two pieces of armor. Find that chink, that one vulnerability, and strike the king. What is this? This is the sharp arrow in the warrior God who has appointed a time to judge the wicked. And in this case, it found Ahab on the field of battle. So he tells his driver, prop me up and turn the chariot around and so on and so forth. Verse 37, the story concludes saying, so the king died and was brought to Samaria and they buried the king in Samaria and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria and the dogs licked up his blood and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word the Lord of the Lord that he had spoken, killed and desecrated. The man who once lifted up his claim to authority above the Lord has been brought low by a single arrow, finding a chink in his armor, becomes, and his blood becomes the food for dogs, and the corrupt waters becomes the cleansing agent for prostitutes. So this is the picture of God's targeted judgments. Now, two things. So we sometimes live uh, until we realize the truth of that targeted proclamation of guilty. We live like a fat, dumb, happy, arrogant King Ahab for years and years in our life. And for the unbelievers who we come in contact with, their life of basically dismissal or rebellion or more overt expressions of rebellion against the Lord is like the King of Ahab saying, I haven't died yet. It probably isn't to God, you know, sure, um, you know, the time might come, blah, blah, blah. But in the meantime, this or that, a nonchalant, dismissive, cavalier attitude about the most important aspects, questions of human life, like yeah, everyone will die and where will you go? And is there a God and are you accountable to him? What does that look like and how would you know? These kinds of questions do not occur to us in our self-indulgent sin. But remember, the targeted arrow of God's judgment found Ahab in due course. His days were numbered, God knew them precisely, and directed the instrument of his reckoning precisely where it needed to be at the very moment that he had directed. Now, for those of us who are believers, we realize this, and when we hear this, it causes us to both fearfully and gratefully express our thanks to the Lord. I deserve that targeted arrow but Christ, who gave me this faith as a gift, as my shield, and now the arrows of the enemy, he shields me from, and most of all, the arrow of his judgment, he shields me from because Jesus took that arrow for me on Calvary, so to speak. But we also have a problem, 
as believers of sometimes doubting the, the targeted judgments of God and how good he is at governing his world, how precise his day of reckoning really is when we're surrounded by so much wickedness. The psalmist satisfies his soul, contents his soul by reminding himself that the judgments of God are inescapable, that they are precise. And though he is in distress, he's surrounded by the wicked. He's in Meshach and Kedar. And it seems like there's no escape. He knows, ultimately, that the Lord will intervene in his time. And in the meantime, he can call to his neighbors, we imagine him perhaps, with this proclamation of wickedness. Perhaps the best case scenario would happen. They would repent of their lying and their deceit and join him on that pilgrimage to Zion, if you will. Second instrument of judgment, glowing coals of a broom tree. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of a broom tree. Whatever could this mean? Well, upon a little study, I can venture an answer. Broom tree, uh, coals, they are good for making charcoal. In ancient times, they were known to be a particular a wood with a particular consistency that would lend itself to prolonged, hot, burning fire. So as you uh, see this imagery joining others in Scripture, we find that God's judgments are not only precise and directed and personal until we repent, but they're also ultimate and intense. That is, this fire that cannot be quenched compared to the embers or the flames that are fueled by the broom tree is akin to the fires of hell and these other imageries like sulfur that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, or the fire that spewed forth in Numbers 16 and consumed those who bore 250 blasphemous censers that declared independence from the Lord and His anointed in the days of Moses. That fire of God's judgment, ultimate and intense, it is proportionally calibrated to the blasphemy of the unbeliever. That is to say, mankind in his rebellious wickedness and minimizing and dismissing his sin, hates the thought, and they, oh, how could a loving God have anything to do with the idea or the concept of hell? And the answer is, you don't understand the wickedness and depravity of your sin if you hold that attitude. The ultimacy and the intensity of the judgments of God, they're proportional to the blasphemy, the cosmic treason, the insurrection that we commit against a thrice holy God who is worshipped forever by creatures designed for the same. And when the curtain of glory is open, just a crack to see in Isaiah's vision the glory that he deserves, what are we to cry out, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I am undone. And as I imagine, the angel takes the tongs and grabs perhaps the coals of a broom tree and touches them to Isaiah's lips, indicating this. That in Christ, the fire sanctifies, but outside of Christ, the fire consumes and levies his judgment ultimately and indefinitely forever against his enemies. I imagine back in Numbers 16, where those 250 censers are collected after the fires of God, that a broom tree fire was made and those censers were hammered thin in the fires of the broom tree until they plated the altar of incense and were placed in the tabernacle as a reminder for all who had come to Mount Zion to worship that there is no other way to reconciliation with God other than the means and the anointed servant that he has appointed. And to trust in another or to indulge your sin or to remain oblivious to these truths and these facts that have been laid down from the very beginning 
is to put yourself directly in the path of his targeted judgments that will ultimately destroy you. And you will end up being a teachable lesson. You will end up being a tragic example and glorify God once more in your judgment as a reminder to those that if they don't turn and repent, there comes a day of reckoning. But thank the Lord in Jesus Christ. This is not our destiny. And so we look to him, but our faith and our, and our faith is uh, ordered accordingly to our hope in Zion. But along the way, we can grow in our fear of him when we recognize how high the stakes are. Prayer, proclamation. Third expression of the psalmist's cry in closing this morning, lament. What troubles the soul of the psalmist? We've mentioned a few things, and he expresses this in sort of a lament. And 5 through 7, he says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Meshach, as far as we can tell, the southeast edge of the Black Sea. Poetic way of saying distant regions. Kedar, the Arabian desert. Too long, verse 6, have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. So more than this distance is what it represents. Those who are far from the Lord, who love and hate peace. I, but I am for peace, he says in verse 7. When I speak, they are for war. What troubles the soul of the psalmist? As we mentioned, his proximity to Zion. Meshach and Kedar are far away from that place of covenant assurance. And oh, how his soul longs to be there. Oh, to dwell in the temple of the Lord. Better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of Meshach and Kedar. Oh, to be a bird that roosts on the parapet of the temple than to enjoy the robes of the king and this distant pagan land, and so forth. This is the heart of the psalmist, recognizing the joy and the hope and the glory of Zion. What is Zion? Let me venture a definition. I've said it in the past, bears repeating. Zion, best I can collate from the teaching of Scripture, it's the place of reconciliation between a sinful man and a holy God upon the satisfaction of covenant terms and conditions. Zion is the place of reconciliation that has restored relationship between a sinful man and a holy God when the terms and conditions of the covenant are satisfied. The pictures of Zion throughout Scripture, among them mountain, temple, city, sacrificing, and feasting. In Zion, that place that represented, of course, by temple worship, the temple itself, Jerusalem, the holy city, Mount Zion, the holy hill, the place of God's dwelling, his holy habitation. All this language in scripture is poetically describing the place where man is in right standing and restored fellowship to the Lord who he had transgressed against, had been kicked out of Eden and had inherited his distance from the Lord by virtue of his sinfulness in Adam now that being atoned for, the sacrifice being provided, he being sprinkled with the blood, or that blood being sprinkled on the mercy seat, and then as a signal and a seal that God is pleased to dwell with his atoned for people, the presence of the Lord, physical, tangible, fire and smoke, would fill the holy place, dwell between the cherubim who otherwise guard the presence of the Lord against any of the unholy. And now the people lift their hands and worship and say, I have arrived, I am here. Yahweh has saved me. The sacrifice has atoned for my sins. And all of this spoke of Jesus Christ. My mom is memorizing the book of Hebrews. I'm kind of jealous of that right now. And she, how far are you, mom? Chapter eight or nine? 
chapter 9. And in the book of, sorry for uh, bragging for my mom. She didn't put me up to this, but I just wanted to brag on her for a minute. In Hebrews chapter, or the entire book, we see the fulfillment of the picture of Zion in Jesus Christ. And now all of these terms and conditions that are prophetically and ceremonially pictured in the Old Testament come true in him. This is Mount Zion realized. It's powerful. So so long as we are distant from Mount Zion or there are elements of distance between us, it should cause us distress. When we dwell in Meshach and Kedar or even this side of glory, there's a sense of we're not home yet. But we are traveling towards a place where a city like Abraham built with God's own hands. And therefore, we reject the cheap substitute in the meantime, the Babel engineers of our day, the city of man. And so these pictures kind of come together. What troubles the soul and what is his lament based on? It's based on, in part, his proximity to to Zion. Where is our habitation, identity, and meaning to be found? Is it in Meshach? Is it in Kedar? Is it in America? Is it in our vocation merely or our pursuits, our ambitions, our hobbies, our interests? Or is our habitation, our identity and meaning found ultimately in Mount Zion first? And then everything we're called to flows from this. We dwell among a people entertaining one idol after another, desperate to resolve their crisis of meaning. We dwell among a people entertaining one idol after the other, desperate to resolve our crisis of meaning. We live spiritually in Meshach and Kedar. But we are those, when we are walking in the Spirit, set our face towards Zion. We sing the Psalms of Ascent. And we lament because the proximity of our culture is so far from the place of reconciliation with God and man when the covenant conditions are met in Jesus Christ. So we cry out, That this word, this proclamation, this second person accountability message of the gospel would be proclaimed. And we seek for opportunity to do so. And people join us on our journey of ascent to Zion. It thrills our soul. We have legitimate fellowship. We are happy and content as we share stories of reconciliation, of salvation, of hope and grace and mercy and kindness of our God. And on that journey... We may be far, but as we begin to travel, we are joined with another, joined with our children, joined with our spouse. I was thinking this morning, I was following behind Mark's vehicle on the way to Providence Community Church where we gather to worship. And what joy ought to fill our heart if, say, we're following three vehicles and they all turn into the same parking lot to worship the Lord Almighty. This is the heart of Zion realized right here in our What a joy, because when we get out of those cars, the doors slam, we assemble in here. We are joining with those who have been saved by grace, if you know him today, who have cause and reason to celebrate forever. And we will be reconciled to the Lord when it's fully manifest in glory one day before that feast that is spread on Mount Zion, fully realized the marriage supper of the land, rejoicing him forever. So that drive from our place, you know, of dwelling in our homes, To worship the Lord at Providence is something of an ascent, if you will. It's a statement of faith. It's a drive with a purpose. And when realized according to what God has ordered, it brings us that much closer to Zion. The psalmist dwells in a place of conflicting worldviews. Too long, that is, his worldview conflicts with those around him. Have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace? I am for peace, but when they speak, they are for war. I submit to you that 
not just war and peace is pictured here, but this is an example of the polarized virtues of the wicked and the righteous. I am for righteousness, he might say. They are for wickedness. I am for grace, mercy. They are for pride. I am for the glory of the Lord. They are for the glory of self. I am for holiness. They are for debauchery. I am for self-control. They are for self-indulgence. I am for mercy. They are for vengeance. I am for godliness. They are for paganism. I am for justice. They are for lawlessness and so forth. One thing that troubled the psalmist is that he lived as the seed of the woman among those who did not share his worldview, which had been transformed and shaped according to Scripture. And inasmuch as they were unrepentant and remained in their sin, were the seed of the serpent. There's war and peace are two polarizing uh, ideas, of course. And this is a picture of the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. It's a troubling difference, but God, when He eventually intervenes by way of either salvation or judgment, those contradictions will be resolved, if you will. That conflict, better said, will be resolved. As he has found himself on his journey to Mount Zion with some distance between him and the place of arrival, he is surrounded by those who despise his heart, and his vision, and his goals, and his purposes. But, as I said before, in the meantime, he is proclaiming to the wicked that they are guilty and implicitly, we know from the rest of Scripture, if they repent, they could join him on the way. And as he travels to Zion, he is going to be joined, presumably, as the roads lead to tributaries to connect to less and less roads that eventually lead to Jerusalem by more and more travelers. Is that the sound of Psalm 120 I hear? Echoing over the next hill and you quicken your pace. It is. And then you join in song with those who are traveling to Jerusalem. And Zion becomes realized in this poetic picture as the psalmist finally, with all the saints, are able, whatever it was, once a year to gather and to worship the Lord, surrounded by the faithful in the presence of the Almighty, whose glory is seen emanating out of the mercy seat after the atoning blood is shed, and all who have, been received, have received the assurance of pardon through this symbolic sacrifice praise Him with the burden of their sin lifted upon the shoulders of their Messiah, setting them free from the guilt and shame that they once knew. Turn with me in closing to our worship text in Hebrews 12. Gene read this for us this morning. I, I never, uh, or I always remember, the, when we talk about Mount Zion, this glorious picture of fulfillment in Hebrews 12. It's sort of the magnum opus of fulfillment of prophecy and what the saints have to expect. As you're turning there, you know, I've mentioned this before, but it might be a little bit more of an obscure thought to you. In Ezekiel 28, there's evidence in the prophecies of God that Eden itself was on a high place. It was on a hill. More of this in future messages. There is, therefore, I submit, an inherent memory and a remorse for what was lost in Eden. That is to say, we know we are fallen. This trajectory of, I wish we were higher, than we are now, this aspirational, if you will, orientation of the human soul is an expression of regret of what was lost in Eden. We know something's wrong if we are honest with ourselves. And so everyone is setting their hope, or societies tend to do this, for a higher plane of consciousness, a higher plane of existence, the hope to transcend ourselves. There's modern versions of this, of course, the transhumanist movement. 
even, I would suggest, colonizing space or shooting for the stars, or this desire to be released from the shackles of this habitation. We look up and our progress, even in our politics, towards a utopian end. These are all pagan songs of ascent and will not ultimately lift us from the place of our fallenness unto restoration of what was lost in Eden. All this testifies to the inescapable memory of what was lost in the garden due our sin. There is, saints, in closing, but one narrow way of ascent unto glory, and it is testified to in the Scriptures. In Hebrews 12, 23, let's go to 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Amen? Let us close in prayer transition. Father, we thank you for the promise of ascendancy in Christ. Because he was raised from the dead, so in him we will rise from the shackles that once condemned us to the grave in sin. Because he was ascended before the Father, so we will arise in the second resurrection before his throne and in his holy habitation to dwell forever. Because he rules and reigns, so in him we as his agents and delegates rule and reign as well and have a job as his ambassadors to proclaim these truths until the kingdom comes and his will is done on this earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we thank you that we in Christ look to Zion, secured and assured for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray each day, as we may face our own distresses along the way, that we would join the heart of the saints who went before and the saints who will come after we are long gone and setting our face towards Jesus Christ, who ascended Mount Zion, perfect, blameless, and was killed there, that we might join him in reconciliation with the Holy God. So we sing this last song, Lord, let us do it out of a heart of worship and thankfulness for saving our souls, that we may dwell with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.